All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here, here with Carl. How's it going, Carl? It's great, thank you. So I want to get, is it the NIMI band, or do I say Bionim? What am I supposed to say? <laughs> so Bionim is gone, so the okay. company is NIMI, and the product is the NIMI band. That's what I thought, okay. So why don't you tell everybody what the NIMI band is all about? Absolutely. So the NIMI band is what we call a wearable authenticator. So it's a wristband. You put it on and it knows who you are to communicate uh, your credentials so you don't have to have passwords or things to unlock other devices like your computers, your mobile devices, doors. Um, but how it does that, how it knows who you are is through a unique biometric, which is your electrocardiogram. So this is the heart signature, the electrical activity of your heart. Uh, is a unique biometric, like a fingerprint. Uh, so we have this technology, we put it in a wristband, so essentially you can put this thing on, it reads your electrocardiogram, knows who you are, and then stays persistently knowing that it's you throughout the day, as long as you keep it on. So if you, if, and just for, unfortunately, the problem of doing an audio style <laughs> show is you can't see it, we've got yep. one here, and it kind of looks like sort of Fitbit-y, sort of like a slap bracelet, like the Apple Watch band kind of, yeah. it's got this rubbery thing and then there's like a, a, a what looks like a brain module. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I mean we call that the puck or the body. So I mean it's, a lot of people look and think it's a bit of a, a fitness tracker mm -hmm. um, and so you, it's got a magnetic clasp on the top, you close it, um, it's sort of a silicone rubbery uh, wristband. Uh, but yeah, the brains are sort of in this one, you know, sort of rectangular body on the top. And, uh, you know, it's got Bluetooth and that's how it's uh, communicating who you are to your different devices and applications. Um, and the idea is you put it on and you forget about it so that you have a completely passive experience. Do you have to pair it with the devices you care about? Is that like yeah, a regular so, Bluetooth thing? So any sort of application or specific device you want to know, you want to, uh, it to know when uh, you're there to unlock it, uh, you go through this what we call provisioning. So it's a pairing process uh, where you set it up and then after that, so whenever you're within proximity, it will know that it's you. And, and can you buy one today? You can absolutely buy one today. So. Uh, for now, we're selling it as what we're calling a discovery kit or developer kit mm -hmm. um, uh, for developers, really because it's still early days around the mm -hmm. applications that are available. But it is the um, it's the final hardware for the first generation product, and a lot of people love playing with it. And uh, we're we are very developer focused to help people write applications that are NIMI enabled. So when you if so if I'm walking around and I you know go to the bathroom and I take it off to wash my hands, uh, I must then reauthenticate. To my devices. So first of all, you don't have to take it off when you wash your hands. It is water resistant. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it is the the idea is that you would uh, it's probably better because I want to get the germs off the thing yeah. too. Yeah. So so keep it on during the day. But uh, if you do take it off, uh, so the the process of authenticating, meaning just letting it know who you are, takes a couple seconds when you put it on and you just touch it with your finger. Um, but you're not reauthenticating your devices. The idea is that you're reauthenticating to the wristband, mm. and then the wristband becomes that passive thing that lets all your devices know that it's you. Um, it's also, it, you know, it's a, it's a it's an approach to use biometrics. It also keeps your biometrics safe. So there's no database where we put your ECG in or anything like that. It's between you and your wristband, and then as as long as you've unlocked your wristband with your ECG, then it can talk to your devices. I see. So it doesn't store a copy of ECG and match it against. So it, it does do that, but it does it locally. So there's yeah. no, it doesn't go to the cloud or right. anything. And right. I mean, uh, there was a recent hack where like it was a million fingerprints from a database that was released, and you know we don't want any of that. Right. So it's like it's like um, in in a sense, uh, you know, it's like uh, Apple's fingerprint li lives on the device. It's encrypted on the device. Exactly. So if you steal it, you can't yeah. hack your way into Rob's ECG and then like. 
tell me my medical <laughs> problems or something weird yes. like that. Yeah, no, exactly. The idea is that uh, it, it's the same model, you know, so that uh, you you know that uh, it's it's yours and not not anybody else is going to say, hey, you know, let's see what how we can monetize this data and do something <laughs> different with it. <laughs> Sell as ECG on yeah, the open market. Exactly. Uh, okay, so let's let's take a step back and, and figure out how because this is a pretty pretty cool product. I wish you could sort of see it. We do a video, but I never published a video, so I, everyone look. You're not going to see <laughs> one it. day, ten years. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> like be the size of your fingerprint yeah. and embedded in your wrist at that point. Um, l l take us back. You said you started this this whole endeavor about four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't look like that and this wasn't exactly the use case. No, exactly. So a little over four years ago, so I was pretty fresh out of doing my PhD at U of T uh, mm -hmm. in electrical engineering. Uh, had a co-founder at that time. Uh, we both had biometric technologies that we had worked on. We're like, hey, let's start a company and figure out what this, what we can do with this. Great idea. We have no idea what we're doing. Um, Did you have an idea at the time, or so was it just we had like some idea. so? Here's the funny thing, and I tell everybody starting their own thing. So we had ideas. Um, so we we had other technologies beyond the ECG, but for for the ECG, it was like um, we had a company that makes like these uh, chest worn mobile monitoring devices, like very high end for like military and and uh, sort of first responders, like like firefighters. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, they're, they're, they were kind of interested in our algorithms, because that's all we had was algorithms, literally just some code that for how- Through your PhD. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, um, and we're like, hey, they have some interest. They're thinking they're going to like identify military people in the field because they have these things that they're wearing. Mm. Cool idea in principle. And w Jesus, man, we like, we spun our wheels for months and months and months. Turns out their business was like barely, like they barely had a business. You know, they were making these devices. And so. Oh, so somebody approached you. Yeah, they, they had, they had these quote unquote devices and they're yeah. like, we will buy, we'll partner with you with exactly. your magical algorithms. Exactly. And, and, um, you know, at, at that's so we had what I would call these. This was the reason why we started. We're like, okay, there's some validation here that there's a commercial market for this stuff. Took us pretty much two years to figure out you can't sell algorithms, and <laughs> um, and and you, and if you're trying to at least make sure you're have, talking to companies that actually have a you know sound financial basis and. And so, uh, but so we iterated through so many ideas. So I mean, we had a major uh, video game, a console maker. You know, you can think one of the top three. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to put it in the video game controllers. You know, you hold the controllers, mm -hmm. it knows who you are, connects to your accounts, uh, mm -hmm. all of this stuff. We spun through all of these over two years. We probably had about fifty different opportunities, and none of them panned out. Or like, what you know? Two years of this, you know? Why are we doing this? Well, I'm just curious because in my experience, so uh, when I, was, I ran this uh, company called Endloop, and we, we did some games, and we had companies, major video game companies, approach us, and they're like, "Oh, you should totally like port your stuff over. Yeah. You know, we love you. This is great. We have a little thing. It's new. You should do it." And I'm like, great, so how much money are you going to give us? They're like, no, no money. Yeah. I'm like, well, okay, great. But you're going to promote the thing? Nah, maybe we'll promote the thing. Maybe we'll the Did they even yeah. offer to pay for the work? So, or they're like, do some work. Come back to us if you found something. So this was exactly where, so there was certainly, you know, something there if we got so far as they're like, okay, we're going to do, you know, joint development and we'll put it in our next product and everything. But we didn't realize we were so far off from that. Furthermore, it's their job to scout out new things, right? Like if you're one of the big electronics uh, manufacturers, they've just got hordes of people go out there looking for stuff, and so. And is it like they're like they're putting the risk on you? Not to be really negative about it, they're like, you do the risky oh. shit, 
Oh yeah. And then come to us when you found a th- aha, and then we'll monetize. It. Well, when they're when you're a big player in the market, you have that luxury, right? right. It's like you're you know people stupid startups like us will talk to you and, yeah. and spend and you're like, time. Ooh, it's a big company. It, Name the company. Exactly. It's like you know big dollar signs. Oh my god, they exactly. they want to talk to me. I'm so special. And exactly, you think you're so special, you don't realize that that's their job. There yeah. there are people there that that's all they do. They <laughs> go and waste every startup's time. <laughs> and and so it took us a real long time to figure that out. But um, I, to, at the end of the day, uh, first of all, I was pretty fresh off of my for grad school, so I was used to having no money. So it's like you know, <laughs> it, it was a pretty easy transition from having no money as a grad student to having no money as a startup. But um, I don't regret that very early slow process because it ultimately brought us to the epiphanies that that made us you know conceive of this product, um, and uh, and we learned a ton. And I mean. The, the thing that we learned, and part of it was kind of like drinking our own Kool-Aid, because we were trying to sell these algorithms, say like, yeah, ECG is like the next biometric that's going to, you know, it has all these great properties and it's better than the fingerprint, blah, blah, blah. But there was one kind of piece of Kool-Aid that we were drinking ourselves, which was that at the end of the day, this, the technology is not completely seamless in the sense that you, you still have to do something. It's not like you just walk by something and it knows who you are based on the biometric itself. You have mm-hmm. to hold it. You have to, it's going to take a few seconds. And so our epiphany was that there was no single new biometric that was going to solve this problem of passwords and authentication. Um, and the, what we really needed was like a new implementation, a new way of doing biometrics, not the biometric itself. And so two years in, we were looking at wearable tech just because there's so much wearable tech going on. And we weren't doing hardware at this point. We were not a hardware company. We were only three people. And then we thought, so we had this epiphany that said, well, there's always going to be friction proving who you are using any means, biometric, password, whatever. But if we put it on the body instead of on the devices you're trying to access, Mm Now you can you would only have to do it once, and we can use the fact that it's on the body to persist it. So instead of doing it for every time you pick up your phone, every time you want to open a door, or whatever, you're only doing it when you're putting the thing, whatever it is, on your body, and then that thing can become your proxy, right? That thing can be the thing that virtually kind of enters your password into everything because it's in this constant state of trust. And that that epiphany took two years to come to. Right. <laughs> And so I was, no was there, I mean, and just for those tuning in, this is entrepreneurs in small rooms drinking yeah. coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy and we're with, we're with Carl, Carl of uh, NIMI. Uh, so h- how did you, how do you, like two years, it's not long, it's long, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> the point is you, you realize at some point that, hold on a second, how do you, especially, actually two years is long enough that you can, can get lost in it. Oh, How yeah. did you have that realization? Like what was, did somebody hit you on the head? It's and you're funny. like, yeah, no. That's a key part of the story. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, actually. So we were actually in an incubator um, at the, the, so the Rotman School of Business at University of Toronto has an incubator called the Creative Destruction Lab. Mm-hmm. And so we were in this incubator and it's a funny program because it's kind of like Survivor where they kick companies out every so often. And I didn't know that we were super close to getting kicked out oh, yeah. because they didn't see us progressing. And mm-hmm. so um, we, we were actually thinking of trying to raise a bit of money because we thought, oh, we're getting close to getting some of these potential licensees, you know, to go over the line. So like we just need a bit of money to make prototypes to d- better demonstrate the capability of the technology. Again, this is before we conceived of making it wearable. and. 
And then, so we. What talked. did you have? Like, what were you? So we had a demo. So I mean, we've got the algorithm. It's just code. Yeah. It's just yeah. software. And then we would use hardware. Like I mentioned, that company that makes the chest-worn yeah. ECG thing. We actually did something where we where we hacked it up to make it handheld. So we took like the electrodes and put it right on the body of the device so that you could hold it. So it was. It's kind of like this puck thing that you hold, and it would and it would recognize you. I see. Um, so that's what you'd show to exactly. investors. So that's and, what we and would demonstrate. But that in itself, it's like, well, what do you do with that? Yeah, right? okay, okay, like, okay, okay. Well, why don't I just use the fingerprint, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so, but we were thinking, okay, you know, we have this interest, you know, video game controls was one of them and all these other things. And so we, we went to some of the advisors who are also investors uh, in the Creative Instruction Lab. And we're, we had a private conversation where I was about to open my mouth to talk about, hey, maybe we'll raise some money. And just as I was about to open my mouth, one of them, and his name is Dennis Benny, and he's one of our current investors, he said, you know what, your business model sucks. You gotta do something different. And then I shut my mouth. <laughs> and it's like, okay, maybe now's not a good time to talk about raising some money. And he just said, and so he had experience doing OEM business, meaning essentially licensing core technology to other companies. And he said, at the early stages, it sucks because you're not connected to the customer. You're not connected to the use case. You don't really know if it's real or not and to learn from it. He's like, you got to make a product. You got to do something that's, you know, where you completely own it and control it. Mm. And so that was the gentle slap in the face that we got. And so that like disintermediate yourself from a potential customers. Is yeah, that what he was basically and, I saying? Mean, it's, it's the customers, but it's also just the use case because we didn't know what this thing was good for. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, the idea was that like you're, if you're say partnering with a, you know, a large company to license your technology, first of all, as a startup, you're pretty much putting all your eggs in that basket. You can't do anything else here. Yeah. And, and you, they could, you have no way to control that process where you're like, well, do we get validation in two months or two years, right? Do we know that this is real? Furthermore, you could actually do something where you co-develop, you're like, this is great, we're partnered with this company. And then they say, you know what, didn't make it into the product. This is, you know, good time. Yeah, sorry. You know, maybe you made a bit of money, but then you're like, you, you know, you could be a year or two into that and be nowhere. Mm -hmm. So just as a startup, it's just not a good way to start. Now that could be later on. And, and actually that's some of the stuff that we're doing now in terms mm -hmm. of getting our system into other products, mm -hmm. but not until you put something out there that truly validate there's a need for it. Mm. And so... We, we came out of that meeting slightly dejected, but at the same time, we thought, you know what? You know, so what we had was like this, this sort of mission. We're like, okay, we have to make a product and we have to figure out what we're going to do. And I got to say, this was like a most important time in the company because what we decided to do was every existing conversation with companies to license our algorithms to, we cut it all off. We just, we, and this was really hard to do because this was all we had in mm -hmm. terms of business opportunities. And there were something like 10 companies we had open conversations with, and we went to all of them and we said, we're not doing this anymore. And so the cool thing about that is focus. And as a startup, you hear about it all the time. They're like, you can't do multiple things at the same time. And it's really hard to pick because you have no idea what's going to be the winner. Mm -hmm. But we said, we knew we would have to focus. So we cut off all our conversations and then now we're sitting there. And it's like, well, we've got to figure out what we're doing because we've got nothing else to do except you know, figure out what it is we're going to make. And so we literally conceived of what has become the NIMI band over the course of two weeks. Huh. So we went from being just algorithms for the biometric to, hey, we're going to make this concept of a wearable authenticator in two weeks. Um, and it was such an important time in the company because 
we just, you know, we got focus and we, you know, kind of resolve that this is, and you know what, once we conceived of it, like, we couldn't sleep. Like, we're like, this we have to make this. Yeah. We, you didn't know if it was the thing, but you knew that it was a thing. Like you just yeah. had to test it to know. So we had to test it, but there's a certain thing about when like you can't sleep a bit. Like, you know, I felt that, and that's where the sort of the two years of ex prior experience comes in handy because you you kind of start to get much more self-critical versus when you're just out of the gate, right? It's like yeah. we've been doing this for two years. We've like, you know, we've been now telling others, okay, this is the route that doesn't work. Um, and so we felt pretty good about it, but definitely need, you need outside validation. You always need outside Two validation. more quick questions I'm yeah. curious about. One was, um, were you worried that, I mean, these potential licensees could come in handy in the future. Were you worried about burning bridges with them? Um, I mean, yeah. I'm sure you didn't say, go fuck yourself. But yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, we were polite about it. And Were they like, uh, I'll kill you and your children? Or well, they like, okay, whatever. Well, and actually, that's a very good sign, which is that they were not that perturbed about it. I see. So, and then That's you're like, okay, this was not that serious. <laughs> they were not banging down the doors for right. this. And and they're kind of like, okay, cool, let us know what you're doing. And uh -huh. uh, and so, uh, you know, we didn't, we wanted to go work for a while before we let, really let them know what we were doing. And so we didn't tell them exactly what we were doing, but we said, look, we're going to make a product. And they just, it just wasn't a big deal for them. And so that's an important sign. That's cool. And then the <laughs> second question is, um, as a startup, you get shit tons of advice from everybody and it's often contradictory and oh, yeah. often they're you know it might not be good or bad but sometimes it's from notable people who have weight behind them how how this is a pretty big piece of advice to th say i think you're right and then cut off your existing direction how do you know that that was the advice to follow versus 39 other opinions probably yeah. in the same room oh yeah no absolutely like so this is a huge deal you get there's no shortage of advice today <laughs> and and from people that have accomplished great things and so it's so easy to get stars in your eyes it's like wow this guy's you know had a 300 million dollar exit whatever um and you know what it came down to it wasn't the advice itself it was the kind of the slap in the face that just forced us to think about it because mm. We always actually wanted to make a real product, not just you know sell algorithms, but we had no idea what to do. And so we defaulted to just trying to sell the algorithms. The slap in the face said, no, you do have to think about uh, uh, making a product. And so it just forced us to focus in that direction. Yeah. And so we kind of knew it was right. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was, oh, that w we've never heard, thought of this idea. Um, but it, it was the kind of like, okay, you know, now, now, you know, sometimes you just need a little bit of validation or a bit of push there, and that, that's what that was. And then the, the, the last thing is, how do you, so building a piece of hardware, like a thing, <laughs> is a thing. Yeah. It's yeah. not software. No, and, and it, please don't do it if you don't have to. It's cool, <laughs> it's fun, but holy crap, like it's, uh, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a lot of effort. And so, um, so yeah, once we finally settled, it's like, okay, it's, it's not just a piece of software, there's this piece of hardware there, and then, were any of you hardware people? So I, I have an electrical engineering background. I, you know, I solder stuff. I make electronics, but I've never productized anything, which mm. is a big difference in this. You know, we were talking about this earlier, like all the Kickstarter and stuff. A lot of people that know how to prototype, nobody, not very many people know how to actually make something that uh, is a product. So I have never made a piece of hardware product. So I, uh, the first step was to recruit a hardware lead. Mm -hmm. And this was a really cool thing of like when you, finally hit that thing that kind of keeps you up at night, which is then you start selling the idea, not in a way of like to, to uh, you know, customers, but like 
building your team, getting investors and all that. And we're, so you think of this rigorously, it's like, okay, I can't raise money for this unless I have a hardware lead, right? I can't sell just the concept. I need and, to demonstrate. And did you have money at the time to do no, that? No, so we didn't have money at so, the time. So, and this is the other thing that happens. You're now having to sell ahead of when you can actually sort of fulfill the your end of the bargain. Mm -hmm. So next step was to recruit somebody. They're going to have to be top notch and they're going to have to have a leap of faith because we have no money. Do you say, That's, I'll pay you later or here's some equity or like, how did so you? So definitely, so, uh, so the guy we recruited, uh, I didn't know him, but my co-founder knew him. And so I spent some time with him, knew he was the right guy. He had a job. So he had a paying job. And so this is a like, now quit your paying job. We will give you equity. So we essentially said to us, you're a late stage co-founder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and we were never, you know, we're always, you know, you got to get people invested in it. Yeah. So we're not like, okay, well, we'll pay you later for a bit of options. Like, no, we're going to give you a pretty significant stake mm -hmm. and you're, uh, and you're a co-founder. And so it was over the course of a few days where, uh, you know, that was like my number one thing. We can't do anything else until I have a hardware lead. Mm. So over the course of a few days, just stayed on it and convinced him. So it was under a week where he decided to quit his job and, and uh, join us. And um, so he did that and he, uh, he uh, prototyped the first NIMI band in two weeks. And this is not like with an Arduino or something literally designed the circuit board, had it built, and he soldered it at home uh, so that we could then demonstrate and start to raise money in two weeks. And so that was confirmation. So you had the had capacity the right to not only like do the prototype, but actually get it made? That yeah. was like a full stack? Yeah, exactly. And so this confirmed we had the right guy. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, it's cool. So we have it in our office. I should have brought it here, but it's uh, it's sort of, it's just a circuit board. You know, it's a pr about three times the size of this <laughs> thing now. But um, it's, it's, you know, so many people, People don't truly understand what it means to make something because they often think, okay, Arduino or something. It's like, no, this was our circuit board, our complete design. Custom all the way. Um, and of course, but he did it all himself, uh, yeah. which was amazing. So how do you, like, oh, so many questions. We're going <laughs> to totally run out of time. First question was uh, just taking one quick step back. Incubator, you said you went in creative destruction. Is it because you guys were like sort of technologists and like why did you choose to go to Incubator and not just forge on your own or whatever? So at that point when we, we had done a bunch of programs and honestly at that point we were willing to do anything and so that was the first cohort. For advice or money or what? For advice general or yeah. anything, advice <laughs> and money because like we knew that we needed help but then we were trying to, you know, we're in, a lot of startups go through this phase or like they were literally applied to anything because yeah. it might be a bit of money, it might be access, a big thing is building your network. Yeah. We weren't terribly connected, we were academics um, and uh, so this this creative destruction lab thing uh, it was the first cohort it didn't exist so there was no uh, there was no track record or anything and so it came through the U of T channels because it was it was a U of T thing we're U of T alumni and so uh, we did it we didn't know what it was it seemed kind of interesting um, and turns out it was like the best thing and as far as I'm concerned it's pretty much one of the best incubators in in uh, Canada hmm. Hmm. Um, and so in our cohort Thalmic Labs was in the cohort um, and we were in there and um, and so it, it ended up being the best thing because when we eventually raised our seed round so we did a 1.4 million dollar seed round uh, most of the investors came from the program I see and then so uh, the other quick question was uh, this is not a quick question. The question is quick. The answer is not quick. Um, so you, uh, you guys, okay, actually, I'll get to it in a second. So you built the prototype. 
Yep. And then you did what with it? So the next was to, to pitch it to raise money because, so we had a decision in front of us. We knew we were going to do some sort of a pre-launch, right? Okay. We wanted to validate, does anybody care about this? And we had decided we're going to position this as a consumer product to, and that's what we were going to validate. So the immediate thing is, okay, do we do the pre-launch first, get validation, then raise money? Because if it goes well, our valuation goes up, we can raise more money, all of that. But we have very little money to do that, and if it doesn't go well, we're screwed. Right. Um, and so, uh, so that was choice number one. Choice number two is try and convince people to invest now and just get them excited about the idea. Our valuation won't be as good, and, mm -hmm. and but the really important thing coming out of that is let's say we raise the money, we do the pre-launch, and it doesn't go that well. We still have runway to figure out and how to pivot and do something with it. And you thought consumer was the Yeah, so we started with consumer and I mean the decision to go consumer versus say enterprise, you know, company usage was that there's just a lot of things that are going consumer first and then into enterprise. So consumerization of IT, mm -hmm. BYOD, all this stuff. Um, you thought so no big long sales cycle you could just sneak your way in yeah, exactly. because people were wearing and, it and asking. And we felt we could get people excited about it. Yeah. And and uh, furthermore, we knew that there would need to be a developer ecosystem, right? We needed mm. to get developers excited. And you, it's hard to do that with an enterprise product. Right. So we decided to go consumer first. We decided, okay, there's certain parameters to do a good pre-launch or crowdfunding. You need a good video. You need, you know, it needs to look good. Um, and so we felt, okay, we're, let's raise money first because that could ensure we could do a good pre-launch. And there was a lot of connected decisions which kind of, you get so annoyed with it, you wish you could decouple. We say, you know what? How it looks matters, and we couldn't just come up with a concept design that we couldn't, you know, stand behind. So we're like, okay, to do our pre-launch, we're going to need something that looks near the final design. Mm. So now we're going to have to pay. So we didn't have an industrial design team. We we outsourced that, um, and then you have you know companies that'll do it for like ten thousand to companies that'll do it for three hundred thousand. And so we we had to we ended up signing up a company before we raised money. So many things we did before we could pay for it, mm. um, and uh, and then that was how we raised the money by showing that we could line all of these things up even when we didn't have the resources. And then we raised the money and and lined up to uh, do the pre-launch. And then, yeah. And what year was that? So that was 2013. Yeah. So, so to give you a bit of timeline here, so we conceived of this in April 2013. Mm -hmm. That's when we sort of pivoted from the algorithms to making this product. Um, we, you know, we brought. It was right then in those you know few weeks when we brought on our hardware lead. Then we started pitching it around May, June, and we pretty much had locked in our seed round uh, in, in around that time. Closed it in July. And and then we pre-launched in September 2013. On what platform? So we did it ourselves. So no Kickstarter. We didn't no do a Kickstarter, and the, the reason for that was twofold. One was uh, on Kickstarter, when you reach your goal and you end the campaign, you get the money. Turn. We didn't actually want the money because no matter unless we did a 10 million dollar pebble type thing, yeah. it's not enough to fund the business long right. term. Right. And but what you do have is this hordes of people that are now giving you their money and want to and are banging at your door when you're six months late putting it out. Uh, so we thought, okay, we're going to do a pre-launch, and Thalmic Labs actually did the same thing. People had to put their credit cards down to pre-order, so it's a strong validation. But we didn't actually take the money. 
Mm. Um, and so, because we knew we would still have to raise money. And so we, we like the idea of getting the validation, but not the obligation of uh, people that have actually already given us money. And I don't know if this, is ha this happened by that point, but my sense of Kickstarter and Indiegogo campaigns today, like maybe three, four, five years ago, maybe four, I don't think it's that old, uh, the act of being there actually had, it was, a it was like a channel for marketing. My sense is in the last couple of years, it's switched and you have to do the marketing to get to the Kickstarter yeah. campaign, in which case, what's the point yeah. in, in a certain no, degree? No, true. I mean, it's become much more of a, it's just a new type of channel that you need to line yourself up for to do it successfully. Um, and so again, that was actually part of the reason why we did our own pre-launch because we wanted to control the messaging and not have to play that game. And uh, there is often a per uh, perception that it's like two guys in a garage kind of thing. Mm how real is that thing on Kickstarter? Um, and so we, the reason why we decided to do it on our own, aside from what I already said, was also that like it's this, our product is about security, it's about trust. We wanted to be able to completely control that message so that people thought this is real. So then two other, uh, so going back to the question I was gonna ask you before, yeah. a lot of people think um, there's a lot of like hard, there's a lot of noise in the hardware space and a lot of people are like trying to build hardware things because yeah. you can 3D print the thing, you can Arduino, you can Raspberry Pi um, and it's pretty easy to do. What is the gap between that and actually creating a product that people, like what, if you're trying to build a hardware startup, what do you need to worry about? So post uh, prototype, um, maybe even post Kickstarter. It's a huge gap and people don't realize this. They think hardware is easier today. And uh, so when you're actually making something that you're going to put in consumers' hands, first of all, people expect Apple quality. So how do you get Apple quality? So you have things like moles and, and you have to break down the mechanical components and figure out how are you going to make each one of those components? How are they going to be assembled, right? There's, you Typically you have human beings that actually put these parts together, mm -hmm. whether it's in China or North America. And so this is specific manufacturing expertise. This stuff doesn't exist in the hobby community, right? This mm. is, these are people that have done this at scale. So, you know, how do you make each one of these plastic parts? Um, you know, there's these little posts inside that have to connect together and line up perfectly so that you can manufacture it, seal it. I mean, there's one part of our product that uses an ultrasound welding. Um, like this stuff, you don't know about this. <laughs> and, and so, uh, there's a big gap, right? And so prototyping technologies allowed you to make something physical to show people. It honestly doesn't bring you any closer to actually making a final product because the methods are still completely different, right? Mm -hmm. The approach to making the molds and manufacturing everything are completely different from prototyping process. And then you, do you have to like literally go to the factory and like figure out this yeah, shit? Absolutely. And then and, and then is it when you like to even get the first batch, like if, aside from like when you do that by hand, like it used to be back in the 60s, <laughs> uh, you'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to make, you know, car part. I need to now create a mold and that costs, you know, $50,000 or $100,000 or whatever. And, you know, the incremental cost of one versus 30 doesn't matter because the mold is the thing that costs money. Is that the same as it is today? So it's pretty much the same. There's, there's some in-between stuff where you can do shorter run uh, stuff with, uh, with molds that are sort of easier to turn up and, and make faster. But for the most part, it's the same, right? You're not 3D printing things to put in people's hands. You're mm. making molds. Mm. Making a mold is an entire process on its own and it's expensive. Uh, there are people trying to disrupt this and do different sure. things, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the stuff is that, you know, it's not that different. You know, there's more modern stuff, but like, again, that's, 
that knowledge is not in the general public space. Those so are if you were doing a hardware startup, like your advice to other people trying to <laughs> not build your, your product, yeah. but a product as of the level of complexity, or maybe not, what would you say? Great that you got the Kickstarter, think about what? Yeah, so... <laughs> Get a, a lot of money? You need what? a... What do you it, it comes down to the people, the expertise. Mm. You need to pull in somebody that's done something like this before. Furthermore, raising real money, they're going to want to see this. So. Mm. Uh, the Kickstarter only gets you. Kickstarter is just validation. The, kick, the Kickstarter funders are don't know that you don't know how to actually make this thing. <laughs> right. And we've seen that happen a lot. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, we're going to totally run out of time. <laughs> uh, so then you. One, one other thing I was really interested in is when you guys actually started building the thing. Um, you didn't know that the the core. I don't think you th knew the core use case that authentication and ID was the right thing. What did you think yeah. it was? So, or how did you find out that this was the use case that? Was so our so I mean our hypothesis was consumer first. Um, you know we felt the world was ready because they're putting smart wearables on their body. Like as long as there was a, a way to get it on the body that people were willing to do that people could see value in the fact that they wouldn't have to unlock their phone a hundred times a day, their computers would just unlock and you know we had we had this vision of a completely seamless experience where mm -hmm. all of our devices just know it's us and trust us. And so that's how we launched it and we had a video that's a very sort of the visionary future video which was great for validating that concept and people totally supported it. But then when you get down to it, uh, so you, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of applications and integrations to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so we had a realization said, okay, people love the concept, but out of that vision of the future, there was no one or two or three killer applications that we could sort of form a market to market to saying, well, if it just connected to this one thing, then a nice market of people will buy it. Uh, people bought into the, the whole ecosystem of it will unlock everything. Well, we knew we were several years away from that. Mm -hmm. And so we looked. How did you come to that realization? Were you talking to the people who kickstarted, or you were just like thinking yeah, so about we it were, after it? We were like, talking oh. to our pre orders in terms of what are the applications you want. I see. And, and it was all over the map. Right. Uh, and so, so the, when you turn that into a strategy, like, okay, wait a minute, we have to line ourselves up for next funding round, and what do we have to show for our next funding round? We need to demonstrate product market fit, show that there's a very clear market of people, no matter how niche initially, but it's focused. Mm -hmm. They will buy it for this one thing, or, or you know, one or two to three core capabilities. And so we hit this realization, and, and that's when we actually ended up making a pivot towards enterprise, because we had a lot of pull in enterprise, but we said, okay, no, we're gonna go consumer first, because we felt that's how to get adoption of just people that like the product and we can slowly move into enterprise. But then what mattered way more was that, okay, well, what's the one, two or three things that people will buy it for? And in enterprise, it was way more focused. You said you had a lot of pull people were calling you from yeah. the enterprise space. So, so uh, companies that saw value in a sort of single sign-on, you know, essentially an employee bad replacement, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. uh, in the enterprise, authentication is a real problem. Um, you know, managing passwords, so big thing in the enterprise now is two-factor authentication. Passwords are not enough, mm -hmm. um, so you need a dongle you're going to carry around. People hate them. The mm -hmm. technology is like 30 years old, <laughs> um, but there's no better solution. They saw this as a better solution because it's multi-factor in one. Uh, you, you have a piece of hardware plus a biometric that you carry around. And if it could be seamless for their employees, that's a huge problem solved and, and it's highly secure. And so 
It's compelling because you you know you have uh, an environment where you know the, the ecosystem becomes narrower. You can focus. You can say, well, if we can create this experience, which is much more well defined, mm -hmm. we have a market for for the early product. And then and and you said you also said like from us you had a seed round and you were looking to get another round of money at that yeah, point. Yeah. So we so we raised our Series A still focused on consumer and uh, no more end, seed rounds. You went right to Series A. So we so we closed our seed round in July 2013 and then and then uh, we did we we kind of had multiple tranches in our Series A but the core of it was in May 2014. So just under a year later. Um, and so at, at that point, so when we raised our seed round, we had only had a prototype, right? Yeah. Whereas when we raised our Series A, we demonstrated a near complete product. Um, we hadn't fully manufactured it yet, but um, so at the end of the day, there's still a core here, which is about the technology. And mm -hmm. so we've generally raised our money around the potential of the technology, knowing that there's going to be some cycles figuring out exactly what are the good early markets to go to. Um, but. That only goes so far too. So we know that our next round will be largely based around the validation that this is of value to our markets. Is it not early to have like these days? It's hard to get a, a proper Series A, right? Like it's hard. You, well, is it? I mean, so it took us a while. Like we, I mean, we started pitching around November two thousand thirteen and and closed in May two thousand fourteen. So mm -hmm. which you know that's about six months, which is kind of long. I mean, there's there's Christmas break in the middle, which kind of sure. extends it, but. Um, but uh, you know, we're we've always felt that we're kind of a bit of an odd duck in, in the whole ecosystem of startups, and that I mean, it's definitely a, there's like foundational technology here that you have to buy into that solving the hard problems of making this product mm -hmm. are valuable regardless of the markets, uh, whether you go over consumer or enterprise, and so that's still always been a core saying that like if authentication is hard, everybody recognizes passwords suck. But nobody's had a good solution so far. Um, we have foundational technology that is uh, that is hitting this problem head on. So the the, uh, the last question because we're over time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, there no, I won't do it because you need to get to a meeting. <laughs> no, no, no. The last the one quick question is why Series A? Why not another seed round? Because would you not? At least in my mind, the narrative is okay. We need to scale the shit out of this, and that's when you go get a Series A, not like. Is well, it just the amount of capital you needed to raise? Yeah, or? that was largely it. I okay. mean, you're making hardware. We needed we needed the capital to, to get the hardware out the door. You know, the final uh, manufacturing and um, and so it, there's just a baseline requirement when you're doing something like this. But there is so yes, typically Series A is more. You know, you've got some of you got something that you can then scale. Mm -hmm. um, we weren't quite there yet, just because we hadn't gotten the product out. Um, but there was a, a general belief that of how valuable was all the hard problems we were working mm. on, as I mentioned. Cool. Well, we are out of time, so <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. So the Nimi Band is, uh, if you want to check it out, what's the website? So it's Nimi.com. That's N-Y-M-I. Dot com. Uh, awesome. Check it out. It's actually pretty cool. It looks like Fitbit, but actually useful. Um, uh, this was Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. Uh, my name is Rob Kennedy. We had Carl of Nimi. And uh, thanks to Nick Kuhn for producing the show and the working group for hosting us here. Uh, stay tuned next week for, I think next week's another recap episode from a past guest. Uh, thanks again. Thank you. It was awesome.